Are you ready, Gary? I'm ready. Okay, let's go. And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Schreiner and Gary K. Wolf on the 301st episode, oh my god, no wonder you all stopped listening, of the Coot Street Podcast! Coot Street Podcast, we're barely getting started, 300 episodes, it's... It's insane. Why are we doing this? I, I don't know. We didn't do it last week. We just plumb forgot. <laughs> uh, well, we, okay. We both. We both. Well, one of the things that we need to remind our listeners, both of them, is that we have lives and obligations and things that come up at the last minute. My, in, in your case, you had a lot of different things happening. I suddenly realized it was the end of my term. I had a bunch of papers to grade I hadn't anticipated, and we just let it ride. We apologize. To people who felt bereft because of lack of a Coot Street podcast last I week. I don't apologize at all. We're doing this for fun. We never promised. And, I mean, in my case, I mean, I, I understand you paper grading to do. I had to actually sit down and edit stories for a book called Infinity Wars that's coming out later this year. And I have to do more of that later today. It's almost finished. And the book's due in, in, in fact, originally was due in in three days' time. But it's going to be ah. due in, in a couple of weeks. And then I can move on to, well, any all sorts of other things that I have to get done as well. You know, I'll go off and I'll chase Ian McDonald for some stuff and a few other things. So, yes, busy times. And occasionally that means that the podcast doesn't come first, unfortunately. Particularly since I feel like we've moved into a stage where we need a bit more preparation and thought to make it still interesting to everybody. Because we've had so many of the... Casual, the, uh, the I don't want to say knee but the automatic kind of conversations that we sort of have when mm. we're together. And so you're looking for something new and interesting. And I know you're going to be recording some stuff at the international conference on the fantastic in the arts. We'll have some in a couple of weeks, and that'll be great. Um, and I will try and come up with a few things as well. I'm going to hopefully be restaging with your assistance a panel from last year's convention that went amiss. So that will be something to keep us busy. But tell me, Gary, what has been occupying your science fictional world lately? I've been uh, – well, an idea which I, I mentioned to you before we started recording, and I was thinking about this uh, when I was reading John Kessel's novel, which we will be talking about on the podcast in a couple of weeks, if we're lucky, uh, The Moon and the Other. It's a Saga Press title. It's a very literary novel. It's, it's one of these novels that uh, – doesn't a lot of the political and and gender issues don't require that it be set on the moon, but setting it on the moon enables him to do things that he couldn't do trying to write a kind of speculative future history thing here, and 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 that occurred to me, and this is something which I uh, actually said in my review of the second Ken Liu novel that people. We had this discussion about what people call literary fantasy, and Ken Liu's novel is a literary novel and a fantasy novel, but this is the issue that I was trying to identify. When somebody says literary science fiction or literary fantasy or literary horror, it's not the simple Venn diagram thing we used to think of. There are people that overlap between literature and science fiction, Ursula Le Guin, for example, but She's a case by herself. The fact is that they don't really overlap, that what you mean by saying something is literary depends on the context of your previous reading. In other words, if, if you're a main – let me give you a specific example that came to mind when I was actually having a wonderful Indian dinner down the street earlier. 
Um, if you have a horror novel by, let's say, Colson Whitehead, it's clearly received as a horror subset of literary fiction. Here's a literary writer doing horror. If you have a literary horror novel by Peter Straub, and you could argue, argue and I would be perfectly willing to argue, that some of Straub's novels are more complexly literary than Zone 1 was, it's still going to be seen as a subset of horror. Maybe. I mean, and, the reason you're, look, you're seeing me look puzzled, Gary, mm -hmm. is I'm trying to pin down in my mind a clear idea of what it is you mean when you say mm -hmm. literary. Is it simply the way an author is perceived in the marketplace? Is it something to do with the range of tools that are brought to bear on the work at hand? Is it something to do with the seriousness of intent? Is it something to do with a quality of craft? What actually do you mean by literary? I'm talking about communities of readers. Uh, there is There are multiple communities of readers in our field. There are science fiction readers. There are hard science fiction readers. There are epic fantasy readers, people who bring to a new book a pattern of reading in the past. There is a literary reader, people who might not normally read any kind of fantastic literature. So, but so we'll you're talking about people a, who read the genre of modern literature? Yeah, exactly. And don't usually read science fiction, fantasy, horror, or anything else? Right. And so when they talk about, when those people talk about literary science fiction, they don't think they're talking about science fiction at all. They think they're talking about Margaret Atwood or Colson Whitehead or... Jonathan Lethem doing an oddball thing within the context of literature. Uh, they don't see this as making a connection between the fields. I'm arguing against one of my own theses. Uh, my own thesis was the title of a book called Evaporating Genres, which is the, these barriers are breaking down. I'm thinking that from the writer's point of view, yeah, the writers we know uh, feel very fluid about moving among genres. I don't think readers have caught up with that yet. I don't think the horror community embraced, oh, I don't know, Colson Whitehead's novels uh, or, or, um, or some of the other literary people who've worked in that field. And I certainly don't think that the literary community has embraced, has embraced very literary fiction. I don't think the literary world is going to read uh, John Kessel's very literary novel because it's not what they read. Is it because it's not what they read? Or is it because it's not published and marketed into the environment that they find their reading material? Um, um, you know, this book, now The Moon and the Other, is going to come out from mm -hmm. Saga Press. It has a very classy, stylish-looking cover. It's not a Garrett yeah, cover by any means. Um, and it, I am sure it will be well distributed by Simon & Schuster into bookstores across the country. I, I, my, my fear for it, actually, is, as an individual title, is that it will fall into a gap between the two existing, if you like, markets that are out there for liter literary fiction and science fiction and not find mm -hmm. a market at all. That's, that's my fear for it, which I hope won't be the case, because I believe it deserves to find a, a significant market. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know that I'm convinced completely that reading communities are as clearly defined or as inflexible as your description suggests. I do understand that there are social communities, that communities that appear to be somewhat inflexible, uh, if, if that's even the right word for it, or at least clearly defined and know who they're talking to. I'm not sure 
that it falls as clear in, in, in as harshly or sharply defined a way as you imply. Now, I'm certainly aware that you know there are people who will look at a book and say that's not for me for whatever reason, and they'll say it's not mm-hmm. pitched to me, it's not been marketed to me, and that's very very real. But I, I wonder about whether the actual market for literary science fiction isn't a subset of literature, a subset of science fiction, and we're looking at it from the wrong kind of side of things. I'm not sure what it would be otherwise. I mean, one of the things we've noted before and some of our guests have noted is that uh, there are periodic efforts to break out a science fiction or a fantasy or a horror writer. Knopf does this. They did that with Paolo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife. They'll be doing it again with Daryl Gregory's new novel, Spoonbenders. The idea is to break into that audience almost as though you were a new writer because this is, by and large, an audience that will have not, not have read uh, Bacigalupi's short fiction, for example. So, so, the, so it's a new writer. Daryl Gregory is going to be, in a sense, a new writer when Spoonbenders comes out for that group. There are clearly people who are much more Catholic readers who are, who, who read across. There, it's, it's not it's not as rigid as I made it sound, I suppose. But nevertheless, if it didn't exist, why would publishers be so concerned about finding a mainstream market for a science fiction book, or a, although it's probably less important, a science fiction market for a mainstream book? I'm going to guess from the depths of my ignorance that they're just looking for any market at all. Well, yeah, and I think so, you know, when you look at a John Castle novel that is a literary science fiction novel, you logically sit there and go, okay, he will pick up the science fiction readers that he already has, the people who have been waiting for the follow-on from Corrupting Dr. Nice, and he will pick up some people who are aware of short fiction in the interim period, in the last 20 years, uh, and that will be fantastic. Asimov's readers will read him, and Tordacom readers will read him, and that'll be a happy thing. What else can we do? Who else can we reach out to? We, f- we see in this text something that would theoretically appeal to your mainstream literary reader who doesn't consider themselves likely to read science fiction. And you could see the book that they've packaged mm-hmm. showing up in a ma- just in a mainstream bookstore outside of a science fiction book session, section. That's obviously what they're trying to achieve. From trying That's to what they want to do. Um, but whether it says anything about the text within the covers, I'm less confident. Um, it it only affects the text within the covers if if you can get these different readerships to read the text between the covers. And that, this is one of the problems. I mean, a, a better example than the ones we've mentioned so far, another book which is uh, a very literary, very complex, very rewarding, very science fiction novel, uh, which we hope to talk about on the podcast soon, is Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140. Um, and I was... In the process, actually, of writing my review of that, and it occurred to me, um, writing a review, actually, n- not the one for Locust, but the one for the Tribune, where I felt, in writing for the Tribune, it's probably necessary to point out that Kim Stanley Robinson is probably the most important environmental novelist that contemporary American literature has. Yes. He's consistently dealt with this. He's dealt with it with cutting-edge knowledge. He, if, if, if his science gets dated, he worries about it. He goes back and revises his uh, uh, Science in the Capital trilogy because he had some scientific things wrong back in the 
late, early 2000s when it came out. So he's he's rigorous about the science. He writes character very well. He writes really nice prose, uh, and and his plots are complicated and sometimes. Uh, in the case of the new one, almost Dickensian. He's got a couple of scrappy kids in it. So it's it's got everything a good novel should have, and yet it's got a cover that's a pure science fiction cover and a title that's a pure science fiction title. So my thought was, for the readers of this newspaper column, how do I get people to realize that if you're concerned about global warming, this is the one fiction writer which you have to read who's indispensable to thinking about that in literary terms? While I think all of your points about Stan Robinson are correct, I think that I would quibble on one point. I look at that mark, the, the cover for that book, and I think mm-hmm. at a certain point, 40 years ago, that would have been a pure science fiction book cover. I, mm-hmm. I look back to, in fact, the, the thing that is in my mind when I think about it now is a book that Frederick Pohl wrote later in his career called The Years of the City. Years probably, of the City, yeah. Probably his last major work. And it formed the cover story for a vol, uh, sorry, from it, formed the cover, was the cover story for a volume of Gardner Dozois's The Year's Best Science Fiction, which showed mm-hmm. a domed New York in, a, in, a, in an inundated environment. Mm-hmm. Very science fictional. I look at New York 2140, and that seems to me to be more the kind of cover that you would get in a modern science slash literary world rather than a science fictional world. I don't think that's a central genre cover at all. I think that there's a certain amount of theatrics, and this may be part of what we're talking about here, somewhere in the background. There's a certain amount of theatrics that are omitted from it. Um, Even if you look at something like uh, Saga Saga Press's cover for the John Joseph Adams anthology Loosed Upon the World, uh, which is all like storm-wrecked seas and all this kind of thing. Yeah, I've not seen it. Very handsome-looking book. Um, it's the same kind of thing. Environmental science fiction now is part of fiction rather than part of science fiction in many ways. I would like to believe that. I think that is kind of what's happened. So when you look at New York 2140, which is not a distant future story and is not an explosive military science fiction kind of Mm -hmm. thing, then that's what people, how they package it. I wonder if what is the key, though, here is seriousness of intent and depth of thinking, which sounds like a very arrogant and privileged thing to say, but a lot of core science fiction is intended to be entertainment, which is valid and fine, and is also very adventure-oriented, features Mm -hmm. lots of sort of fighting, drama, explosions, all this kind of stuff, which is not in a lot of your military science fiction. It tends to be more, sorry, literary science fiction. It tends yeah. to be more cerebral. Yeah. It tends to be more thinking through solutions rather than fighting through solutions. Now, I've not read The, uh, the Moon and the Other, but I'm betting mm-hmm. it's mostly a rewarding but cerebral kind of a story. Mm-hmm. Um the kind of thing that you would have seen in Paul Price's Secret Passages, the kind of thing you would have seen in some of the edges of Stan's work and wherever else. Uh, because, I mean, they exist in a similar kind of kind of space. Well, I mean, yeah, and, and for people who are curious about the world in which he's 
writing the Kessel novel. It's uh, it's the same world as I think four short stories that had written. The most famous one of which was Stories for Men, about essentially a feminist colony on the moon, which limits men's civil rights, doesn't allow them to vote, and and thereby claims in complicated ways that they're a less violent society. And in this novel, it's contrasted with a more traditional patriarchal society. So the gender issues are very complicated, very well thought through. They won him a tip tree award for the short story, or which he, which I think he shared with Mike uh, M. John Harrison mm-hmm. uh, for light. So, so it, it, it is a very thoughtful. The issues in it that are uh, central to the novel are only slightly issues of uh, survival on the moon. He works all the details out. But they're really issues about building communities, about about gender relationships, about power relationships, about how to set up a political system. Um, there are all kinds of issues that um, are not purely science fictional, but as I said earlier, they wouldn't – he couldn't treat them the way he does without a science fiction environment. Fair enough. Um, now, my argument is this. If, if Kessel had been a Margaret Atwood and written – this novel, people would clearly have seen this a novel about gender and power and relationships, which had to be set on the moon in order to do certain things. I'm concerned that people are going to see this as a moon novel which has gender issues in it. Those are two different ways of approaching the same novel. I can see your point, and I think you've articulated it well. I'm trying to work out, I mean, not having read uh, The Moon and the Other, I'm trying to work out in my mind whether I think that's how people you know readers will approach it you're probably correct but i think that that's more an artifact of historical marketing isn't it you know i mean atwood with with good um you know for good reason has been pitched and marketed into a literary genre market the the, the market of the genre market of literature modern literature and so whatever she does it happens to be science fiction and she's regularly written science fiction uh, will be seen as a subset of that. Just as when, I don't know, uh, you write a literary fantasy or a, a fantastical literary novel and all of the fantastical elements are seen as literary tools rather than. Now, I mean, maybe the key, and I'm not being a core science fiction or fantasy person enough, is the actual difference, is the difference of intent with the writer. And that's very hard to map. But do you find, you know, is it possible that the actual thing that Margaret Atwood is doing, for example, is writing a literary novel where she used science, science fictional tools, whereas, or when, when Salman Rushdie writes a literary fan, you know, fantastical literary mm-hmm. novel, he's using the tools of fantasy to write his literary story, whereas a, you know, a Stan Robinson, an Ian MacDonald, a John Kessel are actually trying to tell a genre story. I think that the I think there's a pride in genre that you get from the writers we've mentioned uh, that that doesn't want to uh, abandon what you can do with genre, the freedom of genre. And I I, I think there are writers and I, there are writers who clearly were aware of this division. Uh, for example, uh, K. J. Parker clearly sees his novels, even though there's no fantastic elements in, his, in some of his novels and novellas, the K.J. Parker stories are clearly seen as a subset of fantasy, whereas the Tom Holt stories, which may be even more fantastic, are seen as a subset of literature. Or Ian Banks. 
who's clearly apparently from what I understand from Paul Kincaid's wonderful book about Ian Banks published by the University of Illinois Press and the modern masters of science fiction. Banks didn't care whether he was writing science fiction or mainstream, but he found out that he could sell them to two different markets and get different kinds of reviews. And, uh, you know, he'd been writing science fiction from before the time he sold the Wasp Factory. Well, that's true. In that case, I mean, isn't there an element, though, of how committed the writer is to the tools at hand? Ian Banks appeared to be very committed to writing science fiction on its terms and then doing something with it. I wonder if, again, if if the knot that gets untied when you talk about the difference between literary fantasy, literary science fiction, literary horror, and horror that happens to be literary, horror that happens to be fantastical, horror science fiction that happens to be uh, literary, is this issue of commitment and the kind of story that you're telling, which is at its core a science fictional story or a fantastical story or a horror story, compared to being a literary story or a, or a in each any of those cases. Well, that's uh, that's one of the key questions I think that writers have to answer. That, and then we as readers have to answer: uh, is a sto- does a story need the science fiction to be the story it is? Um, uh, and I would argue, in the case of the Kessel novel, I would argue in the case of a lot of other novels, maybe not, but it can only do certain things within the science fictional environment. And I think there are writers who have realized that. And I think Atwood realized that she had to write science fiction in order to say some things she wanted to say, even though she claimed it wasn't science fiction. Let me ask you this. Is there hmm. a substantive, detectable difference of intent that the reader can, can, can determine, uh, say, between The Handmaid's Tale from Atwood and a book like The Shore of Women by Pamela Sargent or The Gate to Women's Country by Sherry Tepper? That's a very interesting question, and that uh, that involves trying to get into an author's mind. Um, but, I mean, either this is a author's mind question or this is a marketing question, right? It's, yeah, it, it, I see what you're saying. Well, Atwood is unusual in that case in that there was an Atwood market long before there was a Handmaid's Tale. Uh, I remember reading Main Street. She was a very distinguished – she was the leading Canadian novelist probably before the Handmaid's Tale appeared. Um, so in a sense – that's not a fair example. In a sense, Ursula Le Guin is not a fair example. There are people who basically are their own markets. Right now, if William Gibson writes a hard science fiction space opera, it's going to be received as a William Gibson novel. If he writes a memoir of growing up in the South, which he almost did, it's going to be seen as a William Gibson novel even if it has no science fiction in it at all. He's his own thing now. Stephen King is his own thing now. So to some extent, there are genre-free balloon writers that are just floating there in midair uh, and can can be in any genre they want to. Still, when you get uh, a, a Justin Cronin or a, or a Colson Whitehead moving into genre, it's viewed as kind of a lark. It's nice, but he'll get back to his serious work pretty soon. Okay. You've just read and reviewed recently two novels that are set on, in, or around the moon. Uh, mm-hmm. Lunar Wolf Moon by Ian MacDonald and The Moon and the Other by Kessel. Would you describe them as being science fiction that is also literary or literary science fiction? I would use the term literary science fiction um, because I think that science fiction, which is literary, is literary apart from other people's uh, definitions of it. But what makes them science fiction primarily – 
And what other writers may not do is that even though Kessel wants to talk about government and communities and gender issues and power issues and media issues and all that sort of thing, he works out all the details of the moon colony the way a hard science fiction writer. He describes how the craters are sealed over, covered with regolith, uh, how it works in the case of McDonald, which is interesting. He uses a different model for colonizing the moon where you drill deep into the core of the moon. Both of them worked out all the details of their colonies in order to write stories that you could argue didn't require those details. So they were approached as science fiction works. They had to be credible moon colonies before the events in them could happen. And my, my argument is that some mainstream writers who approach science fiction don't work it out to that level of detail. That's fair enough. I think you're right. Um, see, I would say to you, based on my reading of uh, the first Luna book, that Luna is a child of John Campbell's Astounding, as much as any other book is. It's as much mm-hmm. about blowing stuff up as it is about working out details of relationships. I don't know if that's as true of The Moon and the Other based on my reading of the stories that preceded it that are set in the same environment. It strikes me that John's de facto approach, angle of approach at science fiction, is one that comes with not just a seriousness of intent, but an interest in using... uh, science fictional tools for literary purposes, whereas I suspect Ian's approach is taking literary tools that he uses for science fictional purposes. I was going. I was agreeing with you up until the very last point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what Ian McDonald is doing, and he can certainly come on and correct us at any point he wants to, is playing with science fiction in relationship to other genres. He's famously described this as Dallas on the Moon. By the time you get to Volun Volume 2, Luna Wolf Moon, it's much more the godfather on the moon. In other words, he's drawing on he's, – he's using his literary skill to, to, to talk about characters and to develop some suspenseful situations and to write good adventure fiction. But by and large, he's not looking at quote-unquote literary fiction so much as he's looking at other kinds of social melodrama, the kinds of uh, sophisticated soap opera you get in Mario Puzo, for example – um, in other words, he's he's looking at other best-selling genres that are mainstream genres that may or may not be thought of as literary. I mean, I'm not even okay. sure that people think of you know. Uh, it's worth keeping in mind to move outside of science fiction for a while. That for a long time, um, writers like uh, I don't know uh, Raymond Chandler and Jim Thompson were not thought of as literary writers, and now they are. Uh, I think that. Drawing on that kind of tradition, drawing on the hard-boiled tradition is something that science fiction, of course, can do. Uh, and I don't know where I'm going with this, but to some extent, the hard-boiled tradition is now viewed as more literary than the John Campbell tradition is. I guess that's kind of what I was going to come back to with next. How do we bring this conversation to some kind of a point? I, I see the point you're making. I don't disagree with your point uh, that you're making. What do you think is the impact, the uh, effect of what you're describing? I think it creates a challenge for the science fiction writer reaching a literary audience. That is, if you want to fulfill your responsibilities to science fiction, which may be the old Campbellian thing. 
the idea that you have to work out how these moon colonies work, and both Ian MacDonald and John Kessel do that, um, knowing full well that there are some readers who don't care about that. There are some readers who really don't care if you're writing a historical novel as to whether you've done the research, whether you've for, you know, honestly portrayed Thomas Cromwell and so forth and so on. So you have to break through that barrier and say, look, there are things – for this to work as a science fiction novel, you have to ask for a certain degree of patience from literary readers. And for this to work as a literary novel, you have to ask for a certain degree of patience from science fiction readers who maybe just want to read – another survival adventure you know one of my favorite stories from when i was a kid and it used to be anthologized a lot by alan e norse was bright side crossing crossing the bright side of mercury it was just a survival tale how do you how do you survive getting across several hundred miles of you know 700 degree heat and there are bits of that kind of story, classic, old-fashioned, astounding story. There are bits of that sort of thing in both the Kessel novel and the McDonald novel. Uh, and the science fiction reader in me, the kid, who used to read astounding and then analog and then, and then not anything, was thinking, this is fun. This is great. This is an adventure story. Are they going to make it? Are they going to run out of oxygen? Are they going to you know, be rescued? Uh, this is you know, the classic uh, – Clark has done this kind of story, survival survival transit story, getting from one place to another in an in-house bubble. They do that, and that's adventure fiction and at its best, I think, and they both do it very well. But you have to somehow uh, appeal to readers who want that and readers who are willing to really think about – what gender and power represent and whether, for example, in, 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 in Kessel's novel, whether there's an argument to be made that giving males the vote, giving males complete equality increases the violence in your society, which is one of the assumptions behind the society of cousins, as it was in his stories of men, yes. stories for men. So I guess these are three novels that are coming out in March. And mm -hmm. readers can judge them themselves, and we will have conversations with certainly, we hope, at least two of the authors involved in the coming weeks and months or so. Yes. So, what else is happening, Gary? Well, the other thing that's happening, which we probably should mention since this is probably the last podcast we will be able to record before the deadline for Hugo voting, is that I'm going back and twe tweaking my ballot probably right after this. Um, partly because uh, – partly thanks to you because I always feel terribly inadequate in looking at short fiction until I get a chance to look at at least the tables of contents of the year's best. And then I figure, OK, these are some writers that, that, that – this is still where you discover new writers. Um, and I really want to do that as – I know we spend too much time talking about Hugos and nominations. Maybe they, they don't mean much, but I really want to try to recognize the new writers – Mm -hmm. The Rich Larsons that I don't know much about until I see them in anthologies. The other thing I'm going to, the other thing I want to say about the Hugo Awards is that for the first time this year, I've nominated in the whatever they call it, long dramatic form category, the movie category. Mm -hmm. I nominated Kubo and the Two Strings. Good man, I love that movie. There was a wonderful movie. It was terribly original, and it's the sort of thing that uh, I 
didn't expect to see, and it's not it's an unexpected movie. So so I'm I'm going to go back and look at that and, and rethink some of the things I've looked at. You've probably filled out your ballot long ago and have absolute confidence in everything you've said. That's completely untrue. I made final changes <laughs> to my podcast to my ballot this morning, though I didn't happen to mention it to you when you raised it earlier. <laughs> because uh I don't think anybody anywhere could have absolute confidence in their ballot, if only because with only the purest intentions at heart. There is just so much to read and so much to discover, and ballots. I mean, existing ballots produce stuff that you know will highlight work that you've not looked at yourself. Yeah, there was work on the Nebula ballot that I certainly had not read before, as an example. So, if I were to just do something like you know the whole shadowing the Clarks that um, Jonathan McElmont and Paul Kincaid and Nina Allen and whoever yeah. else are doing, I would find myself having to read work anew because. I've not had time to consume it. Uh, it. It doesn't get past my ability to put together a reasonable ballot, but I do find myself, you know, tinkering, asking myself ethics questions as I mm. go through, um, trying not to be too mediated and too tactical about my nominating and just sticking with the nominate what you genuinely liked and think is of value. Uh, I mean, we can overthink all of this far too much. I mean, so it, it's. I don't think you can. I mean, one of the problems you have, obviously, is that there are a number of excellent short stories that were in original anthologies that you edited. And obviously, we know you like these stories because you put them in there. So, so, so then we have to look at. And, and, and those happen to be some of the stories I've read because of, of reading in the anthologies. But I don't see anything wrong with promoting works that are worth promoting. I mean, no one is going to read, as you pointed out many times in introductions to your year's best, there is something like, I don't know, 700,000 short stories published a year <laughs> in science fiction. Exactly. Almost exactly that number. Yes, almost exactly. Yeah, and, and, and no one can read all of them. So what, what you're doing is, first of all, looking at stories that you like, and then among the stories that you like, I think there's no reason to apologize for among those, there are some you want to promote, some writers you want to call to people's attention. There are writers that I've discovered uh, mostly through short fiction that you know may or may not be on the ballot in a given year but uh, but you want more people to read these writers I think that's um, true and I think there's also um, I, I suppose when I'm nominating myself I want to make sure that I'm uh, being as aware as I can I suppose is the way I'd put it rather than being mm. unbiased or unprejudiced because we all have our own uh, biases you know, I look at something like the Dream Quest of Alec Bow by Kids Johnson, which I commissioned, which I edited, uh -huh. which I oversaw the publication of through Tor.com. And I ask myself, is it legitimate for me to nominate that for the Hugo when I have this strong commitment to it and strong involvement to it? I made money from it. You know, I got paid a fee to edit it. And then I think, well, you know what? I actually still think it's one of the best pieces, you know, novella-length pieces of fiction published in our genre in the last 12 months. So I guess I am comfortable doing it. It's, I guess, about not trying to overly promote myself while doing so, even as I realize that I just did so. Uh, no, I don't think so at all. I, I, I think what you do in nominating something like Velibo is completely legitimate. It's, 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 you know, the judgment, especially those of us, well, uh, who are involved, however peripherally, in the actual field, you have to consider, okay, if I bought this once, I mean, Sheila Williams must have to think about this. I mean, uh, sure. Charles Coleman Finley has to think about, it. well, I bought this story. Is it okay for me to? Well, of course it is. 
why did you commission it if you didn't think it was a terrific story in the first place? But then there's the opposite side of it as well, you see, Gary, which is just as much fun. And that is, well, am I kind of obligated to? You know, it's like, I, I, I bought this one and I published this. Mm. Is this part of supporting it now? Or can I let it, can I sort of like let it be out in the world and go and also support this other story that I happen to really like that was published by somebody else? You know, well, I love, I love the, the Visitor from Torrid by Ian McLeod, for example, from Asimov's. Mm -hmm. Is it okay to preference that over a story that I happen to acquire that's eligible in the same category? I think it is. I try to do that. But, you know, I ask myself these questions. Well, this is one of the advantages, uh, and we should probably remind our listeners of this since it is getting really close to the deadline. Mm. This is one of the advantages of the nominating ballot versus the voting ballot when the finalists come out. The nominating ballot gives you enough room to put several candidates in each category. Uh, you don't really need to choose. And, and, and once, once the nominations are out, then your choices are limited. Then you no longer can promote something you like unless it happens to be one of those that's on the final ballot. So I, uh, this, this is one of my arguments, even though I'm terrible at it and have never been very good at it and probably will turn in an incomplete ballot this year because there are categories – that I could not name a single person qualified for, uh, most of the fan categories. Nevertheless, the nomination part is, is, is the part where you get a chance to promote things that you want to promote and valued. And when you get to the voting ballot, once the nominations are out, you have to make a choice among things that may not have all of your favorite stories on it. Let's talk about a category in these awards for a second, though. I don't want to really live in the awards category too much, but it ties into a comment you made just before we mm -hmm. came here. Or moved on mm -hmm. to this topic. And that is new writers and how you define what a new writer is. Mm -hmm. Because it's funny how your awareness, well, a writer enters your awareness and you're sort of going, well, so-and-so is a new writer. And you're going, well, hang on. Like, okay, here's a quick, here's a quick example. Would you, how long would you say Cory Doctorow and Charlie Stross have been around? They feel like about the same generation of writers to me. Are they still newish? I don't think so. They're practically patriarchs. Well, I mean, they've been, both have writing careers that go back 20 years or more. But I had both yeah. of them cited to me in the past two weeks as new writers or newish writers. Really? Yes, I did. Uh, which goes to show just how you can... I mean, to me, you, for, to be a new writer, you, roughly, this is not a by any means a set-and-stone thing. You want a career to be less than five years old kind of thing for it to be a new writer. Mm -hmm. Kelly Robson is a new writer. Cassandra Kaur's a new writer. Natasha Pulley is a new writer. Right. Ada Palmer's a new writer. Um, Ken Liu... Is a newish writer, but not really new anymore. He's been around for a while. He's a new novelist, more or less. Yeah, he's been writing. He's, he's been having books come out for a couple of years, but that's about all. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, this is what I'm coming around to. Have you given thought on your ballot to who you will be nominating for the Campbell Award, Gary? I've given some thought to it. Um, and my problem with the Campbell Award is understanding the eligibility rules. Because you have to well, – and this is a general problem in some of the categories where essentially you have to do some kind of arcane research to find out if the person you want to nominate even qualifies according to the rules. And I don't know that. I, 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 I've, I've actually nominated a couple of people I don't know if I should have. I have – well, an answer on the Campbell, uh, you know, my answer would be, first of all, there's a website that lists people who are eligible. So you can check okay. without having to bother actually working it out. Second of all – in many ways, the onus for checking lies with the um, with the administrators of the award. So they will make that decision right. on your behalf, uh, or at least they'll just determine eligibility. 
Um, I will say all of the people I just mentioned are all eligible and mm. frankly are on my ballot. Um, and I'm very comfortable with, with that decision. I think it's a worthwhile and useful award. Whether or not the writer goes on to a major career that happens to win, I think it's valuable that we have it as a way of calling attention to new writers who are um, out there in the world. You know, like Ada Palmer, who's you know sort of getting some some talk around. You know, Kelly Robson, who's only been around for a short period of time and is in her right. final year of eligibility and so on. So yeah, I guess one of the things about that category which interests me, and this this really has something to do with. Uh, the International Conference on the Fantastic, which I'll be going to in a couple of weeks, because I see there are a lot of people there who are not active, participating science fiction fans. They're academics, and there are a lot of younger writers there. As a matter of fact, Kelly Robson will be there this year, um, and uh, along with Alex Delmonica, her spouse. And um, those are writers that haven't penetrated beyond the readership of Short fiction and anthologies, really. In other words, by the time, uh, by the time, let's say your average academic teaching science fiction is aware of a writer, that writer has probably got a career of ten years old. Among academics, and I'm probably going to alienate some of them by saying this, Cory Doctorow probably still is a pretty brand new writer uh, because it takes that. But and it's not just academics. There's a there's a large chunk of readership that it takes. A few years for writers to percolate into. Paolo Bacigalupi had been around for a long time before the wind-up girl suddenly called him to the attention of lots and lots of people. The thing I would say in defense of an academic's judgment or assessment or awareness of who a new writer might be is that to some extent, I imagine, their assessment is based on somebody who has shown up lately who has now developed a sufficiently developed body of work that I can talk about them in my writing. Someone who's had five short stories out probably hasn't had enough unless they're Te Chang to actually you know, be the subject of academic yeah. discussion yet. So I'm not really too, too judgmental about that or, or of anybody else. I mean, really, it comes down to people like, like us who are probably who need to be more sensitive to it. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things out there right now, mm -hmm. and it's something that I'm following closely and something that I hope we'll talk about in depth on the podcast in the coming months, is the Jeff Ryman article over at Strange Horizons, or Caesar's articles about African mm -hmm. science fiction, which is detailing writers who aren't new, but writers mm -hmm. who are new to us. And that's a very valuable thing, yeah. And there's a related question which I wanted to ask you as well because uh, because you are involved with so many of the exciting new writers. And uh, let's talk about Rich Larson, for example. A lot of stories in the last, what, th two or three years. Yes. Um, and there was a time when it was clear that a, a writer along those lines um, could have a collection of short stories out and then a novel. That was the standard way of doing it. That's what just Budras did, for example. I don't think that's possible anymore. You can have a collection of short stories out, but it's going to be from a small specialty press. So a collection of stories, unless you do something odd, like a collection of Margot Lanigan stories, none of which we've seen before, and they just hit you like a ton of bricks because you're discovering this. Uh, most people can't do that. So where does a short story writer go to develop a reputation beyond the regular magazine readers and the few anthologists. If they're going to remain a short story writer, I don't think they do. I think that what happens is that you 
write, you produce great stories. Hopefully, you know, individual stories break out. I mean, the great example mm-hmm. of the last few years of a writer fitting the pattern that you're talking about with uh, Algis Budras is Ken Liu, who managed to produce oh. a couple of really outstanding uh, uh, stories that garnered a lot of attention. And the gravitas of that made it possible for him to have a high-profile short story collection and novels come out. But that's a right. bit of an exception. Um, I think it comes down to deciding the career you want and then building, uh, building uh, up from marketplace to you know, market to market, uh, becoming a regular in markets, honing your craft, and then producing quality short story collections. Mm-hmm. I've been on the record publicly for a long time, feeling that the barrier to producing a short story collection is far too low. That simply having written eighty thousand words of fiction doesn't mean you've got an eighty thousand word book. Well, I think that happens right. too often at the at, you know in, in the small presses. Um, you need to have had substantial works to justify it. Um, and again, Ken Liu is a great example of that. He had ten times as many stories as he had as he put, yes, in, he put in that in. collection. Yes, and I think right. he was right to do so. Very right, um, because I do believe that, particularly for a short story writer, especially that first collection is a critical step in building your career and moving forward. And you can't do it twice. You don't get to the second first collection. That's probably true. That's, that's absolutely true. And I think you're absolutely right that if a so, – so your advice to young writers is if you don't have a good list of stories that you want to exclude from your first collection, you shouldn't do the first collection. It, exactly. If it doesn't hurt to, to leave stories out, then you're not ready. Is the simple, mm-hmm. simple kind of thing. And, and be aware, I mean, look at, for example, okay, one of the best, overwhelmingly the best short story writers to enter our field in the last 30 years is Andy Duncan, who will be at Ickfa yeah. in a week or two. A spectacularly brilliant short story writer. And he produced a collection in 2000, in 2000, called Belutha Hatchie and Other Stories that won the World Fantasy Award. Belutha Hatchie. The Beulah Hatchie Tales. Belutha Hatchie, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, Belutha Hatchie. Um, and it, it, it managed, it gave him that attention as a, as a first book, winning a major award going on. Interestingly, mm. his second collection did not get that, the equivalent of attention. Came out from a different market, different quantity of copies, and seemed to kind of slide by. It's going to be very interesting, I believe, if, if, if recollection is, is correct that he sold a third collection to Small Beer. And that will be a yeah. great thing because they are equipped to put a book like that out into the world in a way where it can get the kind of attention it gets. But I think it's a, it's a good example. I mean, Jeffrey Ford is another fine example, you know. I mean, he didn't just put all the stories he had available to him into a book. He waited a little while, did the first collection, uh-huh. made a huge impact. Everybody paid attention to that book. So I think care and not wasting the opportunity is important because a short story writer needs, particularly if they're never going to be a novelist, needs to build a, a career somewhat differently you know, than a novelist would. Well, I think even if they are going to be a novelist, they, they may retain the reputation as a short story writer or they may have two separate reputations. You mentioned Small Beer for Press and, and Small Beer obviously brings to mind another example, Kelly Link. Uh, whose short story collection was phenomenal. 
and that, to go back to our earlier conversation, was one that amazingly got reviewed very favorably as a mainstream collection of short stories. It showed up like a year after it had been published. It was still being reviewed in places like the New Yorker and the Washington Post. Um, and Kelly is, I think, uh, going to produce more than one novel probably over the course of her career. But nothing is going to really kind of replace that dramatic debut short story collection with Stranger Things Happen. Um, another example that comes to mind is Mary Rickert, whose first short story collection won the World Fantasy Award. The second collection, just as interesting, but you can't have that, if, you can't have that debut splash twice. You're right. I will say with Kelly, who I think is a very singular example, um, and who was clearly going to be of interest to the literary mainstream because she was so formally experimental in her work. Right. When she does deliver the novel that she's working on, and I don't really know any details of the book itself, the challenge for her, the hope for her, is that the path she follows is that of George Saunders, mm -hmm. who has a long career as a successful, respected, brilliant short story writer, and then has now finally produced a remarkable debut novel that is being heralded. And and you're hoping for that transformation for, for Kelly. Fingers mm -hmm. Although in the case of the Saunders thing, it's interesting because I'll be very curious to see what science fiction or fantasy or alternate history or ghost story reader. It's, it's really a ghost story, but it's wildly experimental in form. I would it's 600 the some speakers. Yeah, I would expect the genre to overlook it. I wouldn't expect to see it on a, on a ballot next year. Uh, I don't think it will be, uh, despite some absolutely heartbreaking moments in it and some overall brilliance. It's it's basically an experimental novel. Although if one of the things that may happen with this, and this is a prediction that um, I'm safe making because I'm probably two or three years out, the audiobook of this could very well end up on a ballot because the, what I read about the audiobook, there's something like 600 voices in this novel most of them speaking one or two lines at a time uh it's it's almost like a, a a radio program and they've apparently got 600 and some different readers including saunders and all of his friends and Goodness. movie stars and tv stars reading these 600 different characters and it could be more successful and more accessible for many in an audiobook format than in the in the print format that, that, that's a curious idea. I mean, it'll be interesting to see. It's if a it's very crazy. curious. Um, but, but at any rate, yeah. Uh, and, and again, to get back to the point we were making earlier, the Saunders book is not going to make much impact in. It's not the science fiction community. As I say, it's it's a ghost story. He doesn't pretend it's not a ghost story, and he does things a fantasy writer would do. He works out the details of what it's like to be in this intermediate state called the Bardo, but. That's not enough to make it appealing to fantasy readers, I don't think, unless they are uh, enamored of the experimental multi-voice style. Fair enough. I mean, this is a Lincoln and the Bardo, we should probably say. The Lincoln and the Bardo is the novel we're talking about, yeah. I, I guess it's probably fair since, I mean, I'm not sure what the, what the next few weeks will um, will hold. First of all, to, I mean, yes, to, to agree that the... You know, the time is at hand to nominate for the Hugos. That will end shortly. The time is at hand to nominate for the Locus Awards. That will close shortly. Uh, we encourage you to do both. Uh, probably also worth sort of making a quick comment about the other books that are around that we're interested in and will attempt to read or are reading or have read that our 
listeners might be interested in, I would encourage our listeners to check out Agents of Dreamland by Caitlin Arcunin. I have a connection mm-hmm. to it, so I'm completely compromised. So ignore me at, you know, should you wish to. Um, my, my youngest has been heavily promoting a Kelly Barnhill novel to me that I have to check out. Um, what else am I reading at the moment? I'm, I'm actually reading a couple of anthologies. I'm reading Gardner Dozois' The Book of Swords, a, uh-huh. a, a big a swords and sorcery book that's due out later in the year. Um, and I'm probably going to read Ruthanna Emrys' debut novel, Wintertide, which has got a couple of spectacularly enthusiastic reviews in the next issue of Locus, actually. So I'm very interested in that. And I do have to read Luna uh, Wolf Moon and get New York 2140 finished before we sit down to talk to you with Mr. Robinson, hopefully. And talk to Stan, yeah. I've got a uh, – I'm always looking at things that come in – oh, dear, I've – I, 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 this, is, this is completely irrelevant, but all the, all the books that were piled on my dining room table, I cleared out a shelf and put them on a shelf, so I'm so happy that I can point to them. Um, I have a new novel by Francis Harding that looks interesting, uh, but I can't see it from here, so I What's don't know What's it called? What new, no, 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 none of this. Stop. What new novel by Francis what? Harding? I have a proof from a, of, a, of a Francis Harding book. If I can – Right, sir, and get it. Quick. Gary's going to race over and get keep it. Our, keep our listeners entertained while I'm doing this. I'm going to tell you now, audience, I think he's got a copy of The Lie Tree in the American edition, but we'll see. Or, or maybe Face of Glass, which has also came out, Face Like Glass, which came out later. It can't possibly be the yeah. the, the, the Saga Press adult uh, novel she's been working on. Not already. Who knows? I'm monologuing now, and again, what you don't understand, listeners, this would be hilarious to those of you who have held out the 52 minutes that, that's taken us to get here. I'm looking at an empty leather chair and a microphone where Gary used to be. I'm trying, I'm choosing to, to believe this isn't any kind of metaphor. I'm also going to suggest, so I'm going to take this moment while Gary's not in his chair before he comes back, to suggest that you should look at Cat Sparks' Lotus, Lotus Blue, which is a terrific new novel. So, Gary, I feel... I can't find I, I heard. I heard all that. <laughs> and I can't find it. I don't, I don't. What were the titles you were mentioning? I might recognize. Was it, it a face like glass? I don't believe so. Or, or was it um, the lie tree? I think no. The lie tree I've already read. Maybe it was a face like glass. Because a face like glass is an older book that is being released into the states now. Ah, okay. um, I mean, very, very that. good book. I mean, as most of her books are, frankly. Uh, the reason that I was so excited and I was willing to look at an empty chair and sit here and monologue at our audience is because Francis sold an adult fantasy novel, or a novel for adults, shall we say, to um, we, to, to Saga Press, to, to Joe Monty. And do we know the title of that? No, I don't know the title of it. And I, mm. I would be surprised if she had finished it to the extent that, that galleys were available. It doesn't really matter. We, we can just tell everybody that should go read it. No, we can tell. I, I can read later. Um, so there's that. Anyway. Well, one of what the else? things that frustrates me, as long as we're talking about things we're looking forward to, uh, is when I get uh, – because because you, reviews editor, to keep me to deadlines that I have to review books that are coming out in the month of the issue. So I'm getting books that are coming out in June and July, and I can't really give the time to read them yet. And one of them is Daryl Gregory's Spoonbenders. Which looks like a lot of fun, and it, again, is one of these things that's clearly intended to be a crossover literary novel. Uh, it's sitting there. I want to read it, but I have to read something for this month's column first. <laughs> so what are you going to read for this month's column, Gary? You could review Lincoln and uh, the Bardo. You've already read it. Lincoln and the Bardo is one thing I'm reading for this month's column. I've got uh, somebody's 
year's best stuff. It just keeps coming. Every time I think I've read this book, another one comes a year later. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm never done reading year's best. Think what it's like um, having to make them. I, I don't even want to think about that. I, we could we could spend we could spend an entire podcast with me in awe of your ability to do that because first of all I, I don't have nearly the, the confidence to choose the stories uh, I barely have the confidence to choose the stories that I like in the uh, in, in, in the in the annual volumes and and every once in a while when I see a story which I have seen in some of your anthologies and I've seen them in Rich's anthologies and I've seen them in Gardner's anthologies uh, I always find a story where I think. I'm completely missing the point here because somebody who I respect a lot chose this story and I don't I don't get it. I just don't get it. That happens one story per book. You know what the greatest misunderstanding of the year's best phenomenon is, I think? One of the mm. greatest misunderstandings is that if a story appears in multiple years best, it must be a better story. There's no actual connection between them at all. So all it has mm. to be is the story that was commonly seen as being good enough by everybody. So, it's a, in other words, it's a kind of minimum bar that it reaches, not... Uh, what, what it comes down to is actually it's meaningless, is what it really means. It's completely yeah. meaningless. As a, if it, there are, what, what are there, four, five, six, years, seven years best right now, major ones? Uh, mm -hmm. If a story appeared in all of them, all it means is that it was competent enough, that everybody liked it well enough, and some people loved it and some people liked it, but it, it, it was above the bar. But beyond that, that's all it means. I, I understand that, and sometimes the stories which disappoint me have been in multiple anthologies. Mm. I mean, I've read stories. I'm not going to mention them, although if we wanted to be really mean, I could go ahead and dig some up. Uh, because one of the things, as you probably know, for years, uh, I was reviewing lots of years best, like three or four of them. And then I'd, I'd, be, I'd be coordinating. I'd be doing exactly what you said I shouldn't do. How many stories are in more than one year's best? How many are in like two years best and have a Nebula nomination and have a Hugo nomination? And you figure, okay, if you've got a Nebula and a Hugo nomination and maybe a World Fantasy nomination and a Locus Award nomination and you're in, it must be a good story. And then I'd read it and it was not a good story. Happens. It's, so quickly, it, what else are you reading, Gary? You're reading the, the, the best science fiction fantasy of the year, volume 11. What else? I do have the, uh, the, the uh, Caitlin Kiernan Agents of Dreamland. Um, I have uh, something which is fascinating and is only marginally related to the field but is endlessly readable is the first volume of the journals of Samuel R. Delaney mm -hmm. uh, covering basically his last year at the Bronx High School of Science through the uh, publication, I think, of Nova and the Einstein Intersection in the late 60s. Uh, and it's just a fascinating mind uh, to encounter. And uh, I'm trying to think offhand of what I have. And one of the problems is I can't see them all from here. But oh, well. um, That's enough. There are books out yeah. there you're reading and books for people to pay attention to. There is one other thing that it occurs to me, and you've prompted uh, my memory, so that's good, that we should probably do before we sign off. And that is just to acknowledge that in the last couple of weeks, very, very sadly, uh, Susan Casper, the writer and editor, passed away. Yes. Her memorial service was just this past weekend, I think. And she was both a vivacious presence at conventions and events you know, over the last 40 years in the science fiction and fantasy circles, but also an interesting and fine writer in her own right. Uh, you know, she collaborated with Gardner as well, Michael Swanwick and others, as part of the Fiction Factory, produced solo mm -hmm. work. 
was a very perceptive editor in her uh, as well at times, producing, co- you know, co-editing with Gardner at least one sp- spectacularly good anthology that was widely underrated called Ripper, that came out from mm-hmm. I think Ace is my recollection or Tor, and should have been a pretty you know dull theme anthology, but actually was quite brilliant and is worth finding on the re- you know on the used market if you can find a copy of it. Uh, and she will be sorely, sorely missed, not just by Gardner, who I think is her partner for 47 years. Mm-hmm. I think that's the number. And, you know, her son, uh, Chris, and the rest of her family, but all of her friends, and by us here at the podcast. As she was almost on the podcast once. Mm-hmm. Remember, she was sitting in the hotel room when Gardner and Jack Dan were having what is still our highest volume podcast. And... I don't think she did this during the podcast, but during the talk earlier, she would say something really acerbic that would completely puncture usually something Gardner had just said, but sometimes something Jack had just said or something. something uh, it was one of those things where you didn't really realize she was paying attention. I only met her a few times socially. And then suddenly your balloon has got a pin in it. And, <laughs> uh, and, and, and that was that – was, my strongest memory of uh, of that podcast, other than other than Jack and Gardner going at it. <laughs> well, on that note, we shall wind up. You and I will see each one. We'll attempt to be sure we see each other next week on the podcast. I think it was it two weeks to ICFA. It's a couple of weeks before I'll be at ICFA. That's correct. Yeah. So, and then we will see each other on the far side, and we begin, continue our journey. We should probably do something on the podcast about this towards the the, the ball of confusion that is Helsinki and the World Science Fiction Convention. Yes, when we, we will, will be in Europe, bleeding money. We will be in Europe, bleeding money, and somewhere in Helsinki. Although apparently everybody who's going to the convention is staying in a completely different hotel from everybody else, which should be really interesting. It is true that I currently have bookings in four separate hotels. Congratulations. I'm not saying that this is a good thing. I'm just saying it's true. Okay. <laughs> On that note, All right. fairly well, and I'll talk to you next week. And next week, until then, it's the Coon Street Podcast. <laughs>